You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So, pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Welcome back to Episode 6 of the Central Station Podcast. My name is Steph Coombs. This episode is what I'm calling a Christmas miracle, a Christmas in July miracle that is, because I finally got to sit down with Jane Sale, the woman who had the idea for Central Station and has been a huge driving force behind it. Um, I first had the idea for this podcast series probably around this time last year, so July, August 2018. 19, 2018. Gosh, we're in 2019 now. What's happened? And I would have got the microphone and the software and all the gear together by September, October. And I remember contacting Jane in October, trying to tee up a time when she would be in town or I could come out to the station and we could record the episode because I thought, well, if we're going to start a podcast series, the first episode has got to be Jane. It's got to be the story of Central Station. You know, what other way could we start the series? But um, that was October 2018 and it's July 2019 now and I've only just managed to sit down to pin her down and have a chat with her. And lo and behold, even though it took me, what, almost 10 months to actually pin Jane down and have this conversation with her, we didn't actually talk about Central Station or how it came to be. We got completely sidetracked and talked about all this other stuff. So... Now I'm trying to organize to find her again and do another episode so we can actually have the conversation of why did she come up with the idea behind Central Station and why is it so important and why is it still going seven years later. So anyway, in this episode, you'll learn a bit about the woman who did have the idea for the website and um, yeah, I hope it gives you guys a bit of um, insight into who she is and and why Central Station, well, you're not going to find out why she made Central Station, but you'll just learn a bit more about Jane. Something else um, I'd like to put out there to people is we are always open to suggestions as to who we should have on the podcast. Um, we are based in Western Australia, but we'll very shortly be able to do these interviews over the phone and over Skype. Um, and we do travel from time to time. So please Give us all the ideas you've got, any suggestions, and we'll do our best to make it happen. And the other option is, is if there's anybody out there who would like to try and record their own podcast episode, um, if you would like to be the interviewer so that I don't have to listen to my own voice every single episode, that is also definitely an option. And please get in touch with us and we'll see what we can work out. Please get in touch with us via our Facebook page or Instagram or send us an email at admin at centralstation.net.au or we also have a contact form on our website, which is centralstation.net.au. This episode is sponsored by Think Water Broom. Think Water Broom are your local water experts for irrigation projects big and small. Their fully stocked retail store sells the latest irrigation products, including fittings, pipe, filtration and solar supplies. Covering the Kimberley and Pilbara regions of Western Australia, their knowledgeable and passionate teams are experts in the design and implementation of the most water-efficient irrigation and water management programs across all sectors. So it only took about 10 months of me asking you and trying to track you down all over the country, but after finally suggesting the other night that we do a podcast with Prosecco, here we are at your table, Jane ready to record. So let's start off with a cheers. Cheers, Steph. To Prosecco. Well, technically it's not, it's just champagne, but close enough. Sounds good. So for everyone listening, we're here today, tonight with Jane Sale, who's the founder of Central Station. And I had wanted this to be the very first episode that we did, but like I just said, trying to track you down over the last 10 months has been basically impossible because you are a station manager business owner, mum, cook, gosh, animal raiser, like I don't even know how many other job titles there are, but you 
and you go between the station and then you come to town and then sometimes you have to travel even further for work so you've just been everywhere but we finally got you here now so I want to use tonight to introduce you to everyone. I'm feeling a little bit like you were after your speeches on Saturday. <laughs> a little bit, bit speechless. <laughs> yeah. That's all right. I'll just ask you lots of questions. <laughs> um, so let's just start off with right from the beginning, where you grew up and how you got into agriculture. Um, where I grew up was probably a long way from agriculture but at the same time the further the years go back the closer life and agriculture had because we all had a connection when I was growing up in some way shape or form with an uncle or a cousin or someone who had a farm for me it was my best friend I grew up in Melbourne um, went to a school in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne um, and had lots of lovely family holidays. Had a big sister that I love, but not all the time when I was young. <laughs> mum and dad and um, we had, they, mum and dad worked really hard and they um, were very entrepreneurial and they had um, a few, they've had a few businesses, but they also worked for corporates and they were sometimes doing both. So I learnt very early on um, to juggle, that people juggle life and family and business and most of the time it can work. Um, and they work very hard to have a holiday house where we're still connected with, it's where my dad lives now and um, down there's when I started riding and fell in love with horses and spent a lot of time on my best mate's farm and loved the life I saw there. So how do you go from growing up in Melbourne, you know, in, in the burbs? Would you say it was in the suburbs? Definitely in the yeah, burbs. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, now you're based on one of the most isolated stations in WA on the edge of which desert? Is it the Great, Great Sandy? Great Sandy, yeah, yeah. right on the edge of the Great Sandy Desert, Eugawala Station, um, for anyone that's looking on Google Maps, just pretty well south of Halls Creek. Um, how do you go from... Melbourne with all its nice cafes and shops and coffee to the edge of the Great Sandy Desert. Well, there's a there's a good 20 years there. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's what tonight is about. Um, Jane Sale, uh, this is your life. <laughs> um, from growing up years to when we moved out there, we it was sort of stepping stones and I suppose you can do it if you've got some – fairly influential people in your life and for me it's my parents um and well to start with it's my parents absolutely but I've had a, a quite a few people I've I've gelled I somehow just loved being in the bush um if it wasn't on a farm it was camping out collecting wood you know getting back to basics and trying to get it and getting an understanding of where all your resources come from comes from and every, where everything comes from all the stuff that you just take for granted when you're in the city and turn the tap on and make a phone call when things don't work so um i that's kind of where it started but i think um yeah obviously it's, it's a long journey from there yeah so you went to school in Melbourne, mm -hmm. primary school and high school, mm -hmm. and then did you go to uni? I started uni. Yeah. I started doing a building engineering degree. I was thinking about architecture and thought that would be a way in, and Dad was keen for me to do engineering, but um, I'm just not very good at being told what to do, and <laughs> as my husband Hayden will vouch for, and my parents as well, um, and I sort of had enough of conforming and wanted to start earning some money and do my own thing a little bit. So I deferred and I worked for a while um, in IT, apart from a few cafes and that sort of thing, but in IT. And um, then I started working for my dad after 
doing a stint overseas backpacking and um, I worked for my dad in his promotional products business and I think that was a massive learning curve for me, working for my dad's small business, understanding the inputs, understanding the markets. I suppose I took a lot more of an interest because it was a family business Um, and it was, I think my IT background had a real value there as well. Um, so I did find I, I found a bit of a niche there and I really loved that work. So was your first real step into agriculture? You said you had the like some friends growing up and friends of friends and visits to farms and your horse. What was your first real step into agriculture? Well, I don't want to say that the other ones weren't real steps, but the first big step, like a career life life change, was that when you met Hayden? Um. Definitely, that you to I, work I think definitely out. yes. I had friends, and um, before that, that had properties and hobby farms, and I'd gone to a friend's farm and done fencing for the weekend, and got a little bit of a, you know, getting my hands dirty. But I think before I met Hayden, I was thinking that every farm had a horse and wheat. You know, <laughs> I didn't un- understand the the you know specialising specialised areas and the you know the edu- the roles and the diverse range of careers in in ag and so when you met Hayden what was he doing and, when where, and where was he I met Hayden on King Island um and he had a I went down there for a girls weekend and he had um a contracting business um growing silage and helping to crop on um, cattle places down there, yeah. Okay, and then you guys started dating, and was he still working down there? He just he just bought because he'd been working down there pretty hard for a few years. He just put all his had a big throw of the dice and bought a place um, in southern New South Wales or just near the Victorian border. And um, he was only a couple of months away from moving there and made a did a massive development in about three months time putting in 13 pivot sites with his partner which he they did pretty much physically themselves um digging out channels and that sort of thing and that was on um trying my god um the mirren creek so how long were you guys – and then so at some point did you move out to the farm or were you guys just dating? No, so I like was that? working for my dad's business. I'd work every second weekend and then I'd take a long weekend yeah, every two weeks. And in between Hayden had tried to get down to see me, but we did the long distance thing for a little while. Um, and was it then I'd that you guys – I'd go there and fill his fridge and come back <laughs> and he wouldn't have touched it and – Get really frustrated with him domestically, which was just the beginning. Um, and yeah, so we um, did long distance thing for about a year and a half. Yeah. And then, then was that when you guys moved to the territory? So during that time, he he hit a one in a hundred year drought at his place, and a hundred percent water allocation dried up to eight percent, and um, it was. It was not just the water being taken away, but you could actually stand and um, see the creek at one point going straight up his pump. Yeah. And he was still using within an allocation and you just go, this is just not sustainable. Um, So he was lucky enough to be bought out by his partner who still um, owns the farm and a lot of others around it and he's grown quite a bit but it was in a better position for that um and then Hayden had a mentor John Donnycliffe that suggested um heading north because it was so much opportunity if you didn't inherit a farm down south it was so hard to make a go and hold on in those hard years um and up north in the northern territories where we ended up going we bought a little block um, on the Catherine River with um, mango trees but it had cropping potential and there was so much going on uh, that 
basically as soon as we moved there, Hayden had a job doing the contract um, cropping for the local export yards and I got a job in the office there. So how old were you when you met Hayden? I was 26. And how old were you when you guys moved up to the Territory? 28 to 29. So that's a pretty pretty late start to ag. Yeah. Really. Oh, totally. To just to go in feet first. Like a yeah. lot of kids even think if they start in their gap year that that's starting pretty late. But yeah, totally. yeah you're really pushing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Old girl. So, so you're 28. You've spent your whole life living in the city, you know, trips to the country though, but living in Melbourne and then you find yourself in Catherine. Yeah, which is one of my favourite places in the whole world and gets under your skin. It's just a gorgeous town. But what, what was that like? It was, a, it was a big shock to the system, but for me it was like a dream come true. I said to Hayden, I'm coming if I get a horse. <laughs> and I worked in the yards. I didn't work in the yards. I worked in the office and that really needed some sorting out and some inventory sorting out so and computer you know it put on all popped on the computer everything had to be accountable which it hadn't been so I could really help there but what I was blessed with was some really skilled leaders at that job um, my boss and the livestock manager who taught me so much and had so much patience and, you know, they'd be protocoling cattle. So I'd go out and tack it, go, no, you don't put your head over the top of the cow in the crush, Jane, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the basics. Um, you know, and that was sort of my introduction to it. And then the wonderful community around Catherine um, was I did my first muster within a month or two and... I'd never felt so, I'm getting emotional thinking about it, oh. never felt so alive in my life, just loved every minute. Where did you go for that muster? Um, that was at Innisfail Station. Yeah. Friends were just in cattle there, so we went there for the weekend and helicopter and coach muster and it was just heaven camping out in the swag on my own, you know, it was just fantastic. Mm. And what else did you get to do when you're up? How long were you guys up there for and what else did you do while you're up there? So we were there for three or four years. Catherine was so good to us. Um, we'd bought our place and made a deal. We don't do any improvements to it unless we pay pay for it when we weren't going to get a bigger mortgage. So um, we had to wait till we'd had some crops or we had to wait till after mango season. Um, and, you know, my salary probably kept us afloat while um, Hayden was cropping and we were we got a precision seeder and we were doing lots of cropping and a bit of hay contracting outside of the export yards and then um, with friends and with my mum and stepdad we bought started a little herd of cattle and adjusted them on Avago. Um So we'd go down there once or twice a year and muster there every year and at that stage... Um, so at that stage, Hayden and I got married. So that was in 2006 and I'd had, and I had Gus a year later. Yeah. So I'd had my first child. Yeah. Mm. So how many head did you have in that first little mob that you guys bought? Um, to be honest, I can't really remember. It was only a couple of hundred, if that. Yeah, so, so I'm just thinking because yeah. whatever you started off with now, yeah. now these days I'm thinking of what you guys manage at Ugoala, yeah. which is, is that, that's got to be, it's around 60,000 60, heads. So yeah. Yeah. Crying just a it's little bit. It's been a very big learning curve, <laughs> let's just say that. Yeah, yeah. did you ever yeah. think that you would own cattle? And Oh, it was it? funnily enough, it was a dream way back when I was working in IT and I got retrenched from a job and was thinking about, um, I didn't think I'd be skilled enough just having horse skills to go up and work on a station. So I was thinking maybe I could be a station cook because I love cooking. And um, you're a bloody good cook too. Uh-uh. <laughs> um, you just want dinner tonight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so I, I thought about then, I read from Strength to Strength, Sarah Henderson's book and just sort of fell in love with 
how you know tough she was and amazing she was and um yeah so um what, what's that book about sarah henderson it's about her going out to uh, falling in love with a guy um station owner who hurt himself he was in hospital in sydney and she was his nurse Oh, okay. And she ended up going out, and that was below river. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. So that sort of introduced me to it, and that was way back, sort of mid-90s. I sort of always um, – I had this romantic vision of what life was Before like. Before McLeod's daughters <laughs> came out. <laughs> Before McLeod's daughters. <laughs> I took a great interest in McLeod's daughters too, though. <laughs> so you're in Catherine – I just want to talk a bit more about Livy and Catherine and what you learnt there and um, some of the experiences that you had because I found like Catherine was the first real outback place I went to and it's just kind of shaped me going forward and it it is so different, especially, I mean, even though you're in the Kimberley now and it's not geographically, they're not that far apart, I feel like they are very different places. Um, funnily enough, when I just moved to Catherine, my mum rang me, I was chatting to her, that she was in tears one night, so upset, missing me, and um, wanting me to come back. She said, you couldn't get any further away than what you are now. And I said, um, I could end up in the Kimberley. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. But mum, funnily enough, also, mum had, um, mum had um, ties with cattle stations. Yeah, that's right. Um, um, when she was growing up, her cousin died on Moorbula Station. And which is she just had another, basically which is across right the road. Next, yeah. yeah. And um, her other, his brother, I think he's still up here somewhere. I haven't been able to find him, but I have friends that have worked with him. And then my great, her uncle, so my great, great uncle, would that make it? Um, he used to run Carafa Station. Yeah. yeah. So the, and my grandfather, who was very bow legged, went to Queensland as a ringer <laughs> in his younger years and used to tell probably tall tales. So there was always this romantic vision of um, all of that and wanting to be capable and independent, I suppose. Yeah. So mm. just skipped a generation and then came back mm. and put you on the bomb. Definitely miss my sister. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who ended up living overseas in she's lived in the uk and in the middle east and she's been away from home for 25 years now yeah and she's Mm. not exactly frothing she did the uni degree she was a good girl yeah she's been she's had the (laughs) posh life (laughs) definitely not living in a tin shed like you no so you're in catherine and then you end up on yugawala station Tell us about how that all came about. And so you had some adjustment cattle in Avago. Yep. And it's just you and Hayden and then there's this block in Halls Creek. How did that all happen? Yeah, so um, Dad had some friends who were interested in the um, investing in the business and Hayden's very ambitious, <laughs> to, <laughs> to say the least, probably more so than I ever imagined um so he was always looking to grow and looking for and he's a real entrepreneur he's always looking for an opportunity um you know he's definitely a farmer and he adores the life he lives but he's a businessman first yeah um and whereas i'm the opposite um but he um oh i can worry about the little stuff whereas he he's a big picture man for sure um, so we were, we always had our eyes and ears open looking for an opportunity and we did it, you know, not tough, I wouldn't say, but my mum thought so. She burst into tears when she walked into the house we <laughs> were living in. Was that the house in Catherine? Up there in Catherine, Oh, yeah. God, that was nothing compared to you, Gola. Yeah. So, um, but we didn't have any ceiling. The, the, oh, really? The best in of Catherine? Brick, yeah, the best of brick wall sort of just had rafters and then a tin roof it was pretty low yeah so that got pretty hot um and but it was you know it was ours and I could always see um I suppose with houses and stuff like that I could see a big picture I was love that, that hell sort to of... keep clean if there was a was yeah. there as a gap yeah so when I got pregnant or bugs when I be- yeah bugs were shocking well one day I left the lights on in the kitchen one night 
And I walked in in the morning and the floor was just black with stink bugs. Oh, God. And, and I put the vac over it and it would cover again as quickly as you oh. clear it. It was just <laughs> shocking and the vac never smelt the same again. Rookie error. Thank <laughs> oh God. So many rookie I errors. I remember so I, many got, rookie errors. I got yelled at so much once at a station because I had the lights on early in the morning but there was a big fly net all around the kitchen it was enclosed but I didn't know that they'd had a few holes in them and so I wasn't aware of that and this lady came in and just ripped me a new one <laughs> scotted me for life yeah so lots of yeah bugs. I'd be her now yeah <laughs> yeah now I understand it back then I was like oh my god yeah. um so you lived in a brick house without a proper roof without a proper roof so when I got pregnant with, with gas um I was allowed a ceiling. We could afford a ceiling because, as I said, we weren't going to do anything unless we could pay for it. And yeah. We had a guy, great guy who ended up coming over to the Kimberley with us to help us build our next house that would do all our bits and pieces when he had a break from the export yard. So I'd be up, I was up a ladder painting my ceiling when yeah. I was sort of seven months pregnant. But we do not recommend that to anybody no, listening. No, <laughs> Do not try this at home. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs, including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. So you, did you have Gussie when you were in, Catherine? Yes. Okay. And mm-hmm. then how long was it after that? Or was it around that time that you guys found Yugawala? How does that timeline work out? It kind of happened straight away. Um, from from having him? From having from having him. So we were we were kind of out on the lookout, but we were looking sort of Douglas Daly area and that yeah. sort of thing. And um, a friend of Hayden's rang up and um, said, I'm selling my place in the Kimberley. And um, do you know anyone over Catherine Way that might be interested? And Hayden's gone. Oh, I can think of someone. I'll get. Oh, I can. Someone comes to mind. I'll get back to you. And he got off the phone, and I said, "Why not us?" And um, we sort of talked about it, and we said, "Let's go and have a look." So, so you went and had a look first. So we drove over there. Gus was like two months old, and it was a. We went via Bulka. So. Yeah. Via Jim and Joy Motta's place at Booker, and um, yeah, went in on this two tire track in to look at the property. It wasn't much to look at apart from grass, and there was sort of there were six waters, I think only three of them were really functioning, and there was only sort of two thirds of the property border fenced, and that was it. And how big is Yugawala? 850,000 acres. So 850,000 acres with six or maybe three waters. Sort of mostly a boundary fence. Did you have any yards there? No. No? And no what about yards. There was an old shed that someone used to live in, but some all the windows and walls had been taken. So basically just no infrastructure. No. And Gussie, the road was so bumpy, I had to roll up a blanket and wrap it around his head so his little oh. head in the car seat wouldn't wobble too much. <laughs> Gus, if you're listening to this and you're wondering why you get headaches sometimes. <laughs> wow. Um, and then you guys just decided to – Did, so, did yeah. you get the cattle that were on it with it? Yeah, there were 800 it? head. Yeah. yeah. And then you bought yours across from Avago? Yeah, we, we sold them into it yeah. at the start and um, – yeah, there was a couple of TDH spade girls that just came through. I think it was last year. Yeah, which Aww. was our brand in the two. It was so lovely to see them. And so what year was that? So that would have been 2000. Or what year did we go there? Yeah. So we looked at it 2007. Yeah. And then yeah. when did you get there? Like to move in or make the choice? or? So we bought it that July. We signed mm-hmm. up. And settlement was in November that year. Yeah. So we just had someone coming in, the same guy who had been coming in for the previous owner to yeah. check on waters. He just came in over the wet season. And then we started moving, the big move in sort of May 2008. So how old are you at that stage, 2008? 31. 
Okay, so within five years of meeting Hado. That's a rude question. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to get a bit of a timeline here, Jay. Although that is a, yeah, now that I'm thinking about that. No, hang on. How, much, how old was I? Yeah, about 31. Yep. Yeah. So within five me- years of meeting Hado, you uproot your life, leave Melbourne, everything you've known, go up to the Territory, start working with cattle, live in a house without a proper roof, but you get your horse. But I got my horse. But you get your horse. Beautiful horse. And then was. you end up buying, did you say, 850,000 acres? Mm-hmm. On the with, with two partners, two yeah. business partners. Yeah. On the a lot edge. of faith in us. Yeah. Um, on the edge of the Great Sandy Desert. Yeah. And you guys moved out there when it had no infrastructure, just the tin shed. Nothing. So yeah. what was the first thing you did when you got out there then? Are you, were you actually just in a tin well, shed with like honest, a little generator? I wasn't there or? the first one out there. The boys went out there because we didn't have any lines of communication. Yeah. I was back in Catherine doing, I mean, there was a hell of a lot of purchasing to be done. Yeah. So the, the admin was. Was that fun, spending all that money though? Oh, or not because it just no, cause it was, it was quite your own. stressful. It was quite yeah, and you know we had budgets and we had to make it work, and it was it was very stressful. And the hardest part was is you know if anyone moves into a new house, you think about how often you go to a shop. Yeah, in that first week, oh we don't have this, oh we don't have that. Well, that just wasn't an option, so we had to go out with there with everything. And the shop, really, the yeah. stores. I, I remember our first shop was seven shopping trolleys. Um, there were a few of us sort of wheeling one in front, one behind. <laughs> Gus is sitting there wide-eyed playing with all the <laughs> packets in the trolley. You know, it was it's it's pretty overwhelming. And if I suppose if someone said to me at the time, "What a, 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 ignorance is bliss, Steph." <laughs> So when you when you did get out there, what was the situation? What did you have to walk into? Um, when I did get out there, the, we just had what is now our workers' quarters, which are two demountables mm-hmm. plonked down side by side next to the shed. Yeah. So um, and that's about twenty k's from the current homestead. That's twenty isn't it? k's from the homestead, but that's yep. where the water was. Yep. So, um, so we had about 17 people living out of there to feed every night. That's got, was it three bedrooms or what? Four bedrooms? It's got, it's got One, four two, bedrooms. Four. At the time we were, we had two singles in most of the rooms. Yeah. And then Hayden and I were off the kitchen and Gus was in the, what the boys now call the Harry Potter room <laughs> down the end. And, and how old was Gussie by that stage? He was one. Yeah. Yeah. He was one and I was pregnant with Tilly. Yeah, so, um, well, he's probably yeah, a little bit older than one, but, yeah, I was pregnant with Tilly and um, we had our airstrip and Hayden had got his fixed-wing licence as well. So he, he was he was semi-doing some mustering with that. And yeah. did you have a phone? So we got a phone. Well, the hardest part with the phone was putting the order in. We, I had to get the ombudsman onto Telstra before I even placed an order. Because I was timing myself putting an order in. This is from the Catherine office. Yeah. And they couldn't even put me through to the right department to place an order. So I ended up getting the ombudsman and having a battle with them. Um, I won't talk too much about that. Just in case Telstra want to sponsor us one day. Just in case they want to sponsor us one day, exactly. (laughs) Um, It was a real battle. And it took a very long time for that to be a permanent line as well. Um, but all of those things, you know, there was no power, there was no water, there was no um, internet, there was no none of all of that stuff. But all of those things make you appreciate your resources so much. And, and it made it such a celebration when you did get it. It was like, yes, you know, all these things that you often take for granted and think I should just have this Mm. which is true to a certain extent but at the same time it's it makes it all very worthwhile when you when it's a challenge to get there and yeah it all came step by step so you got a phone and then were you just running off a generator for power like just just power originally with a generator so just at night time then or just during the day sorry Uh, oh well it depended on the time of year yeah 
when I was pregnant, I wasn't going <laughs> to yeah. lie inside a donger on a 50-degree evening. Yeah. Yeah. And then plumbing. What do you do for that? Um, Hayden actually left me there on a 50-degree day to cook for the crew because he wanted to take the generator up to the new house site to test it. So he went up there, um, said I'll be a couple of hours and this is about 10 in the morning. Five in the afternoon, I'm cooking. I couldn't get Gus to sit still. And little blonde, curly, red-faced, you know, running around. He was overheating. It was 54 inside the donga. And um, cooking a meal for all the crew when they got back. And my sister, who was living in London, and she was also pregnant, rang me and she said, oh, my God, I just I just had to walk one, one block with all my shopping. They're blocked off my street. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm sitting in this kitchen and explain the situation I was in. And she says, oh, you always make me feel so much better. <laughs> oh, so I suppose she made me feel tough yeah. um, too. But anyway, yeah, it was it was tough at times, but it was also, you know, you'd sit back at the end of the day, you'd be, there's a lovely feeling when you're just tired and I think everything else would probably stress us if we too much if we had have had too much to think about yeah and so how long did it take before you got to the new house um we pretty much moved up there in November that that got delivered so that was built oh okay yeah um we moved there in November that year but it was still didn't have the decking on and the yeah. decking was joined all the rooms together. Yeah. yeah. So that was pretty tricky to try and straddle the beams while you're trying to go to the <laughs> toilet six times a day because you're pregnant and you have to go oh, along. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. But Glenn, I put a little walkway in for me eventually. Um, that must have been so welcome after oh. slumming it in this dung. I mean, you're just kind of going from starting in Melbourne in, like, real houses and then going to Catherine in, like, a semi-house you yeah. know, that made your mum cry yeah. and she thought that was bad. Did she ever come out and see you while you were in the dog? She did. She oh, stayed God. in it. So I gave, she had my room. She came out in about October oh, and she stayed in our room. But at that stage, mum's an interior designer and she was um, certainly helped me a heap with um, de- with the building and dealing with the guys that were Modscape who were building it and they yep. were doing that in Melt Victoria where mum lives. So she was a great go-between with that. So mum at that stage could see the bigger picture. Yeah. Um, and where we were heading and we were great and that our, it was definitely a really good, sustainable, um, economical option but it's also a beautiful home. So yeah. um, heading having that light at the end of the tunnel was great. And not long after that, November, I sort of I headed down to Melbourne because I was nearly ready to have Tilly. Yeah. So that's 2008? So or nine, 2009. So she was born at the start of 2009. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So when did – so that's so – sorry, you guys moved there 2008, seven, eight. Yeah. 2008 we moved Eight. it. Yeah. Okay. When did – so now – so that's Yugawalla. Now you guys also have Balker and Margaret River and then some subleases on other country. How did that start growing and in what order? Um, was that before or after the ban? Like when, when the oh, ban so, came? Was so that the, just – The live export ban happened one month after purchasing Balker. Yeah, which station, is the neighbouring station. Which is our neighbouring station. Okay. Um, yeah, from our neighbours, Jim and Joy Motto, who had been wonderful neighbours on our, um, you know, when we were, car- everything that got carted in basically got carted in past their front door. Yeah. And they helped to drag trucks out of bulldust creeks and that sort of thing. They were great and great with advice in the area and stuff like that. So we bought the place from them in early 2011 mm-hmm. when Hayden also did his chopper licence um, and, yeah, the live export ban happened about a month after we started mustering. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what was 
So I do want to talk about that because that was a huge, it's basically the reason that Central Station exists today, but we are going to do another episode because there was another incident around that time as well, your accident, that we'll talk about separately. But you're still just, just having a station to start with and growing just you go all on its own. It's a huge feat. Then you take on Booker. Then you get hit with the ban. And you've got all this property, I imagine, all this debt, all these people you're employing that you have to pay for, all these things you have to pay for. And I'm not even going to try and explain it because that wasn't my situation. So it was, um, it was, oh, it was such a kick in the guts. I can't, I, I, I can't explain the stress and the heartache and the upset that it caused our industry and, you know, just threw our lives into turmoil. And we had, we ran our place as a family business. We had investors, but we were never, we once overran our budget and we made a promise that we were never going to go back hat in hand asking for money. So we had to get through it as far as we saw. Um, and like any other family business, and any other corporate business, it just threw an absolute spanner in the works of everything. And on a lot of fronts, or you know, I won't go into the details of the live export ban, but it, it nearly caused a hell of a lot of um, animal welfare issues w- within the properties and the properties surrounding us, our neighbouring properties who couldn't sell cattle. Um, so... Yeah, I, do, I, I don't even know how to describe how much, yeah. Yeah, how much it hurt. But it also, um, through our business partners, we were able to go to Canberra and visit a few people. And, you know, even getting there was a turmoil and having to uproot the kids and jump in the little plane and go to Alice. And, you know, there was a whole lot of little stories within that just there that, you know, caused so much upset with my parents. My mum dropped everything. She went to Canberra. I didn't get time to ring Dad in between getting out of the little plane and getting onto a domestic flight. So he was um, he was in a terrible state at home thinking our little plane had gone down and then he was about to go to Canberra and do something to the Labor government himself. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't mess with Ross. Um yeah, so it's um, – and then just the ongoing. And I think, you know, it caused all that – we were so unsure about everything going forward and I think lacked a lot of direction, who speaks, what do you say. Um, and then everyone got really scared of the media and um, there's just so much confusion and so many different stories and so many different um, groups sort of acting on your behalf but no one really had any clear direction or were getting any clear information. And um, so, yeah, that was really tough and it was really tough for the next two or three years. The the lasting effects um, that it had on our relationship with Indonesia as a client was terrible. How of the cattle that you sold from Yugawala... I mean, you'd only been there three years by that stage, really, or going into your fourth muster, maybe. How many of them went to Indo as opposed to other markets? The The majority went to Indo, and we were lucky enough that we'd already sold most of our sale cattle that year. That's because you were that is that when you guys were still a fair bit smaller though and yeah had yeah smaller and numbers. we what we did have up our sleeves and where we were blue tongue free so we had yeah. the Middle East and we kept our we always kept our bulls entire mm-hmm. so they wanted bulls and they wanted blue tongue free bull young bulls so we we had a backup market there but we didn't with our bulk of property because yeah. they didn't um, so we had what we had there and. Um, yeah, it, it it and then so what we had there and the prices when the market did come back on, um, that's when, and we started talking to our neighbouring um, indigenous community down at Mullen. Mm-hmm. Um, they were having some trouble with horses down there. They had 
too many ferals, thousands and thousands of ferals down there, and they were about to get their pastoral lease taken away. So we met. They asked us just to come down because they didn't know anything about pastoral properties, and we went down just to sit in, and we didn't really know what we were going down for, but we met the head of the ALT then. and um, so The Aboriginal Lands Trust? Uh, yeah, the mm-hmm. Aboriginal Lands Trust and um, Clinton Wolfe, and he introduced us to his brother-in-law, Alan Lawford, who was at Bohemia, which is our neighbour at Bulka. Mm-hmm. And, um, is that Doody? Doody, yeah. yeah. So we formed a relationship with Doody and Doody just, you know, made us very aware that the Aboriginal stations were the real ones that were missing out here. They didn't have huge numbers to market in the first place. Mm-hmm. So they then the numbers that they had to sell, they just couldn't sell anything because they were right down the bottom of the um, food chain. So they didn't have huge numbers on their property. We had lots of cattle. We needed grass. So we... Um, entered into an adjustment agreement um, with them and with Bohemia. Was that so that was Downs. the year of the ban? That was the year later in the year of the ban. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. As we were starting to run out of water. So that Just gave them an income. And took the pressure took off your the pressure country. off us and, and it, we also um, worked with them to market the cattle through us so they had better Leverage. Or, yeah, leverage yeah. or bought the ones that they couldn't sell and fatten them and that sort of thing. So, Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses. Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end ag industry, while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au. At this stage when the, the ban is on or, I mean, I can't remember when it was lifted, but... It was it, in July, July. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. It wasn't particularly for that long, but no, just the effects went on It was, went on it was June though. to July, I'm pretty yeah. sure. But there's still all this uncertainty. The market wasn't anywhere near what it was before. And so there's, you know, everyone still had cash flow issues. And then, but you're still managing to somehow grow the business. How, what was that like trying to look forward? And because even, even during that period of the time when the ban was on, there wasn't really an option for anyone. You were still going to have to somehow muster and get wieners off cat, off those mum cows to, to yeah, stop any potential wealth issues. Like but... people had to, you had to wean, like that's not a, it's not a nice to have it. So you have to do it. So mm. when you're still, before they lifted it, how does what are you even thinking or what, how do you plan well, you just, for something like that you just have to save where you can and you've got to yeah. do what you need to do we had to back off on staff we had to do a lot of it ourselves i think we had a crew bless them of about two or three yeah on top of hayden and i and um yeah you just had to get out and get it done and you know road, fences didn't get graded roads didn't get you know we, so in amongst all this you put up with the extra bumps and the yeah you know, the corrugations on the road, the everything, everything, all these little things add up to, uh, you know, tough time. And so after Bohemia, you guys, did you take on a few more subleases before Margaret River or how did no, the other ones come into it? No, um, so Bohemia came in sort of end of 2011, maybe even the start of 2012, um, and we bought Margaret River Station in 2013. Pretty sure the Louisa lease was the same year because yeah. it was, you know, with the idea that it's managed out of, it's right next door to Margaret River Station. Yeah. So it was with the idea that we managed it with Margaret River. Yeah. So when Hayden, when we started, well, I've got to say when Hayden started looking at Margaret River because at that stage we were still in a real rush, our industry, sale prices were awful and 
the big thing about our industry is we're price takers. We can do a little bit to market ourselves. Numbers are good. You know, you can get the right type of cattle and there's little things you can do. But in the end, we have to take what price is on offer. So where we make a business is from what money we save mm-hmm. and um, how we manage our properties and how we manage our herd. And, um, yeah, so when Hayden was looking at Mar- Margaret River, I was just going, no, no. <laughs> I was actually not backing the man at the time. I was like, how are we going to do this? But he at the same time, being a big picture man, he's like, well, we do this, we get to you know, you get you get another admin person, you get another thing, and I heard another admin person, and I <laughs> sold. Sold. <laughs> so you got you not go my favourite job. This Yugawala Bulka Margaret River, which were owned, and then subleases on Bohemia. What was the next one? Um, oh, so early days Karanya, we have oh, yeah. just a part of a section of Karanya, which yeah. neighbours Yugawala. Oh, yep. Um, Bohemia, Louisa. Louisa and Lambu. Lambu. And now Lake, Lake Gregory, Gregory Station as well. And, but Lake, Lake Gregory was only last year or year before? Lake Gregory, oh yeah, that was the first one we ever looked at. Yeah. But it only came to fruition. stretched it out, out and it came into fruition in August last year, yeah. 2018. But all those other, so aside from Bulka, which you settled on just before the ban, all those other ones came in the few years after the ban when the market was still pretty horrendous, but somehow you guys were just pushing through and and looking for where you could save in those margins and, and still growing the business. Growing in the business in good, like a good market and good circumstances is trying and testing enough, let alone in those circumstances. What toll did that take on you guys or how did you, what did you have to do to look after yourselves? That's what I want to know, like, just knowing how stressful it was, and, and we will do that other another. So we are going to do a few other episodes. One about working with the Indigenous subleases that you have, and then your accident. And I suppose it's hard to talk about that now without bringing that into it because yeah. that was a big part of those few years. Yeah. But I, I guess even for Hado or for the staff, when it's all when you're building a business basically from scratch. I mean, Yugawala was more or less a bare block, but the mm. other places had some infrastructure and. Mm. You've you've come into it having never worked on a station before, like yeah, straight into it building a business. I think the biggest one was Yugawala, and we hadn't yeah. had the live export ban, but that was two years, houses, cattle yards, fifty waters, three hundred kilometres electricity, fencing, water. electricity, water, all those resources yeah. that had to come in. After those two years, <laughs> I reckon it all seemed a lot easier. When he went somewhere, you're like, oh, this, I can turn on the yeah, light switch. There's, there's this actually place is good. furniture. Look, I mean, the, the people that we bought both properties on them, walk in, walk out, and they were amazing what they yeah. left. Um, and I've got to say, you know, it's staff. We've had incredible, incredible staff. It's not always brilliant, never is. It doesn't matter what industry you work in, but... Our full-time, especially employees, we did a um, – um, one guy came to it with us as a backpacker in 2008 um, and we sponsored him to become – and he's now an Australian citizen, came from Ireland. Um, he has a family and he's – you know, those tough times, these guys, they did. They just buckled down. And I suppose that's because what, they watch you do it too, yeah. you know. Um, you do it all together. You've got to practice what you preach. and um, But, yeah, staff is what gets you through. The people are the most important part. But there is – and I know you know this so much more than I, that in this industry there's people that are so stoic and tough and, you know, just cowboy up and you'll be right, hold it in, just mm. grit your teeth, push on through. But there's this big movement to kind of push away from that now and and look after yourself and talk with people. Um did you guys do anything during those years? Like what what were the little things, I suppose, even if you weren't thinking about it consciously, that just kept you going or to, to look after yourself yeah. really while well during time away with this. our family. Going yeah. I you know, I'm lucky enough to have a family that live in beautiful places. My sister who's overseas, she was in the mid- Middle East and in the UK and Dad's down on the Mornington Peninsula, Mum in Melbourne. I've got family to go and visit and I've always been very adamant about showing my kids 
a bigger world. It's not just all about station life. And they've certainly had that. They've had an amazing, diverse upbringing. And it's, it's very important to give it, take time away and totally cut off. I mean, I don't think we ever totally cut off unless it's for maybe one week or two weeks. Yeah. But even that time is brilliant and just having a few quiet ones either side of it. It's a great – it's good in that, you know, it's quiet in the wet season. It does – Yeah. That business – you know, it quietens down. Hopefully, if you get water, you can really relax and have a holiday. Yeah. <laughs> if you get rain, you can really relax and have a holiday. But um, I think um, it's just really important to take time out. We, Our staff, we encourage it. I had Sina, our office admin girl, she said last year, no, I think I'll stay here over the wet. And I said, no, I don't think you should. You've got to you've got to take that break you've got to get away from it all because it's it's um it's really important to take time out mm. are there any little rituals that you do or traditions or practices either you or you guys do as a family that are kind of like non-negotiables or things you try and do just to kind of keep that routine or like um being married to Hayden has no routine <laughs> Whatsoever. Just Whatsoever. Something to like, you know, like the, you know, like whether it's a sit down. Cause I know it's, every night a, I've been there, we sat down and had a meal together. Yeah. I mean, if, if you've got a long day in the yards, you might yeah. not. You're loading a truck, but do you have no, little we, things we that you always have dinner and had it? When the kids were young, I was very routine. Yeah. They, and they'd be in bed before the crew came up for dinner. I'd have yeah. a proper read with them. They'd do a little dance after their bath. They'd have a read and. Yeah. And then into bed and then I'd have half an hour before the crew hit to come up for dinner. And I think it's really important that crew come up for dinner. Yeah. And in those days when the kids were young, really important for whoever was looking after them, the home tutor, to not have the kids running around and yeah. wanting to sit on her knee and all that sort of stuff as well. So um, definitely that. And as a family, we do this lovely thing at bedtime where we talk about the best and the worst part of the day and it's even as Gus is getting older, he came back from boarding school and wanted to do it yeah. every night of the holidays. And it, it's really great thing to do because if you haven't been around him or if Hayden's been off on another station all day, I, you hear things that you didn't even know were happening that day because yeah. he'll go, oh, I loved it when this happened. It's like, oh, wow, did that happen, you know, and then this happened and it's not the most obvious thing that ends up being the best or the worst. Yeah. Yeah, because it might seem obvious at times, but it's not. Yeah. Mm. Now, it's just That just popped into my mind then because I was thinking in some of our other episodes, people have contacted us afterwards and said, oh, I really loved it when they said that or, you know, this is something I'm going to do now or I just I really resonated with a lot of people with Connie's episode have got in touch and just – I've been in very similar circumstances, so I'm I'm thinking hopefully we'll have other station families listening to this and it's just thinking, you know, other people going through similar things, not necessarily the band, but, you know, it might be now that they've just started managing a place and that whole trying to manage people and landscape and livestock and raise a family at the same time, like... Yeah. And time any out with your family yeah. is just so important and, you know... I suppose kids just appreciate your time so much and and you can sit down and you can set up a craft table, which would probably do my head in, um, but just go and sit down in the dirt. None of us mind getting dirty. You yeah. know, there, I remember one day um, Erwin, one of the guys from Bohemia, sat down with Gus and started breaking up sticks and sticking them into the dirt and they were making a yard together yeah. out of sticks in the dirt and drawing. Gus loves drawing and he draws whenever we're at the beach. Now at Mandora, he draws amazing pictures in the sand and that sort of thing, just taking the time and um, just doesn't have to be doing anything particularly hard or hard to clean up or making any huge effort, just walk outside and, um, yeah. And for me, on my own, time on my own is with Anzac, the bull. Can you tell the, us about Anzac? For anybody who might not have met the Facebook famous Anzac, and um, if you haven't, go on Facebook and search for him. Yeah, hashtag Anzac calf. Um, he, so he's an amazing animal. Um, he grew up 
in a paddock, like all our other cattle, 250,000-acre paddock with his mum. He, he was not bottle-reared. He, he didn't have anyone near him apart from the odd bore-run vehicle going past him. Um, and Gracie, our office girl at the time, she happened to take a photo of him when she was out with her boyfriend doing a bore run and didn't even notice till she got back and was looking through her photos that he had a what looked like a map of Australia on his flank. And um, she, um, so she sent it to us to pop up on Central Station and it went mad. I think it ended up Sunday Times and the Irish Gazette did yeah, articles yeah, on it. Yeah, it did. It went absolutely global. I had um, a political party offer to buy him. <laughs> I was like, hang on, he's actually in the middle of a paddock. I don't know if I can even go near him. And then he showed up at the tank right outside the house during the wet season. And then when it came to muster that paddock, he was pretty easy to spot. So we drafted him off and kept him. And usually if you draft off a wiener, they'll Mm. climb the rails if you try and go near him. But as soon as I went into the paddock, he just stood there, ears forward. As I got closer, you know, he wasn't there in for a cuddle, but I touched him and he didn't run away on the first time I walked up to him. And then we loaded him onto a float, which he then jumped out of. Broke perspex. (laughs) (laughs) But we brought him back in with the bulls and loaded him up again and um, took him up to the house and... He has been amazing. Um, He just, um, I had to, um, he had a wound on him in the early days and I would go down with Betadine to squirt on it and within a day he was just walking in the pen waiting for me to squirt him and um, he just would ride up to him anywhere in the paddock and pat him and then eventually I'd give him a bit of loosen up at the house and then he started sleeping outside my bedroom. So now at night time when he's lying down outside my bedroom, if I get a quiet moment before bed, I go out and lie on him, sit down next to him and lie on his stomach and if I go like that, he'll stretch out his legs and roll over onto his back for a tummy scratch and lie his head on the ground and he makes me breathe slower when he does it it's good therapy he's amazing yeah um lets the kids he makes everyone feel pretty special yeah well let me sit on his back yeah doesn't love the boys gotta say no although the young boys he does (laughs) yeah yeah it's because the old boys smell yeah um (laughs) Just trying to think of, you know, we've just about hit not far off an hour mark, so we should probably wrap this one up. And your glass definitely needs to be topped up. Um, I know, it's a dry argument. put that stopper in the bottle, so I hope those bubbles have still got bubbles in them. Or in the fridge. But this is, I guess, I just wanted this to be an introduction to your story and I'm going to, we'll pull up here and do another quick episode. Just a very short one. Really? Um, yeah, because we didn't actually talk about Central Station. Well, that, and, and I why, thought that was a whole episode, isn't it? Well, no, but we didn't really talk about why you made it. And, and yeah, true. We kind of started there and then we got waylaid. This is more of a Jane sale. This is your life, which is great because people, even if they've read your blogs, it doesn't put the whole picture together. And I think to a lot of people you are a bit of a mystery because you guys just kind of popped up out of nowhere and now run. So what is it? I think a lot of people would like me to remain a mystery. <laughs> I'd like to remain a mystery. <laughs> I'm just thinking, so That's got... the best thing about Central Station is there's so many interesting people. Um, until we get your next vlogs, due in four weeks, five weeks. Um, Glad you can't see my worried face. <laughs> but yeah, you guys just, you know, because so much, I think so many people talk about the old families and the people that have been there for generations and generations and you guys just kind of popped up out of nowhere and you've got, I think it's eight leases together in the East Kimberley and then you've got your personal block down on the um, coastal plains between Broome and Headland. So, and you've done Central Station and you guys have done other things and contributed a lot to industry. So I think 
there's there's obviously our little tribe in the Kimberley and territory that know you and know your story, but a lot more people, I think, are going to like this. And yeah, so thank you for that. And well, thanks yeah, for listening. If anyone <laughs> stayed online this long, well, hopefully they had a really long drive to town. <laughs> yeah. But um, one like mine. Yeah, we'll pull this up here and then make sure you tune into the next episode to actually know why we made Central Station. There are currently over 1,100 compelling true stories on centralstation.net.au, which will open your eyes to what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. There are yarns from station managers, ringers, cooks, govies, pilots, vets and more, told with humour, self-deprecation and pride in a job well done. There are tales of working in stock camps, mustering cattle, and how education and socialisation works in some of the most remote parts of Australia. There's stories about the wonder of living in an amazing landscape, but also the perils that come with flood, fire, and drought. And there's stories about the inherent danger of living in isolation, including times when the flying doctor has come to the rescue. These stories paint a vivid picture of outback life, the good, the bad, and the dusty.